This is not your grandma's Bible study. All right, welcome back to part two of um, Not Your Grandma's Bible Study with Dr. Warren Carter. Um, in our last episode, we talked about um, the genealogy of Matthew 1 and the birth announcement to Joseph. Um, and in this episode, we're going to talk about the Magi or the wise men and Herod's response to the news of the birth of Jesus. So dive right in, shall we? All righty. All righty. So uh, let's start with talking about who are these wise men, um, how they get in here. What's their what's their point? Right. What's going on? Yeah, I, I think they have to be the the most misnamed people <laughs> in, in the whole of the gospel, because these these characters um, literally the, the Greek word is that they are magi, um, which refers to a group of folks, um, particularly probably from the Persian Empire, who kind of combined a series of skills. They're part astrologers. They're part political advisors. Um, they are part um, folks who observe the stars and try to interpret what is happening in the stars as a reflection of what's happening among human beings. Um, they're also uh, part priests with priestly rituals. So you know they've got a they've got a number of portfolios here. Um, so to translate them as wise men is not really very helpful. Yeah. Let's try political advisors or political figures or even astrologers, as long as we understand that astrologers in the ancient world you know, were political figures. They saw significant events uh, happening in the, that, that happen on earth being reflected in the heavens. So kind of like reverse horoscopes, you know? Do you think that the translation choice of wise men is because, you know, political advisor or astrologer is not going to be a well-received component in our contemporary context? Well, it may be if we think of, of um, New Testament texts only as kind of religious spiritual texts. Mm -hmm. But if we actually understand them as texts that emerge from the Roman Empire and negotiate Roman power, then political advisors would be a whole lot more helpful right. as a translation. But one of the ironies of calling them wise men is that they ask one of the dumbest questions <laughs> that, that anyone has ever thought up. So they turn up in Jerusalem and they ask the question, where's the one born king of the Jews? And by the way, we don't mean you, Herod. Because <laughs> Herod, of course, is called king of the Jews right. or king of Judea. Um, the only way you got to be king in the Roman Empire was if Rome appointed you as king, if, if Rome sanctioned you. Um, Rome anointed you as king. That's the only way you got to be king. Otherwise, if you just want to call yourself a king or if you had some followers who called you king, then they regarded that as treason. And the best way of dealing with that was to nail people to a cross, right. which, of course, is exactly what happens to Jesus. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert at the end of the story. <laughs> exactly. you this. So they ask this incredibly dumb question, where's the one born king of the Jews? And, and Herod's reaction is immediately, well, I didn't get the memo on that. Yeah. I wasn't on that email chain. Why didn't, why didn't I know about that? And so um, verse 3 says that he was troubled. Yeah, you bet he was. Yeah. He was very disturbed. He had a migraine, and all Jerusalem had a migraine with him because when the king has one, we all have we one. All do. Yeah, happy king, yeah. happy life. Exactly. The there you go. So I think some of the the weight of this 
gets lost, um, at least I would imagine, I mean, it does on me sometimes, because the United States, we're not a monarchy. So, I mean, even in, in our, you know, the primary royal family that we have any notion of is the, the British royal family, and they're a very powerless institution. I mean, she, there's a lot of Figure soft hit. diplomacy there, but, mm-hmm. I mean, that's not, they're not the seat of the power anymore. They don't have political power in um, that sense, right. And so, so even the one sort of connection that we could make doesn't have the power that Herod right. yeah. has been given. Right. And so I think that, you know, we we could read this and, you know, why, why is Herod so scared of a baby? Right. You know, it's just a baby, but it's this, there's some real weight behind right. a title of king that is really lost on contempor- our contemporary society where we don't understand sort of that right. tyrannical power. Yeah. Yeah, we've got to read this along lines of power. Yeah. Power and powerlessness is, is at the heart of this. And Herod is appointed king by the Romans to rule his part of the Eastern uh, Roman Empire. So he's the face of Roman power. Poster child. Yeah, he's the poster child. Even though he's king of the Judeans, he's there to represent Roman interests. And you know, the rest of the story, he appears as this horrible tyrant. And in some ways he was, but historically... Some, in some ways, Herod was quite smart. He kept power for um, nearly 40 years. It's a long time. Um, a long time. He, he understood that the Romans were the main power. He understood that his power derived from them, and he understood he had to keep them happy mm-hmm. and that his territory of Judea could not become or could not be a little isolated island that pretended that Roman power didn't exist. And so he was quite astute in trying to recognize Roman power and open up his, his territory to the presence of Roman power. So, for example, he renovated the temple in Jerusalem, massive big building program, but one of the things that he did was put a great big, what he called the court of the Gentiles, around the temple. So here was an area right around the temple where Gentiles could come and meet Jewish folks, right? So so even the temple was not going to be a retreat, a hideaway. Uh, Here was a place where where Roman folks and Jewish folks could could mix. Um, He did did other things as well in terms of buildings. and He built a city um, facing... Um, west on the Mediterranean called Caesarea. Guess who won that name, the city competition. Um, but as a way there of, wasn't much competition. Not much yeah. competition on that one. Um, but it was on the Mediterranean coast. So it was open to Rome. It was open to the rest of the Roman Empire. This was very strategic as a way of trying to open up um, Judea to um, to Roman power. So even though he's presented here in this story in a very monolithic way, I mean, he's a big, mm-hmm. bad, nasty king. There's no doubt about it. Um, that, again, is a choice yeah. because what we know about Herod, he's a whole lot more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. He's a whole lot more complex. He's a whole lot smarter than this story makes him out to be. He could be ruthless. I'm not defending yeah. him. He could be ruthless. Um, but with a he's, lot of blood on his hands. And yeah, with a lot of blood on his hands. But what king didn't? Or yeah, doesn't? what king so. didn't? Yeah, he had a wife he killed. He had a couple of sons he killed because he thought they were all plotting against him. So, you know, big dose of paranoia there. Yeah. But he was also politically smart. 
But the story here in Matthew presents him only as a tyrant who gets on the wrong side of what God is doing. So he's frightened. All of Jerusalem's frightened with him because, you know, the king has a headache. We all have right, a headache. We'll have a headache. So he immediately summons, first of all, we get, we get his strategies. First of all, he summons his allies mm-hmm. because he's the ruling king, but he can't rule on his own. So he rules an alliance with these folks who are called the chief priests and scribes, who are also political figures. Which gets lost. A which lot. gets lost. We often think yeah. of them as just sort of olden days modern clergy. Mm-hmm. Right. They do <laughs> religious things, um, but they are societal political leaders. So you've got to think in terms of an elite group who have power and wealth and status. Mm-hmm. Um, religion is not a separate sphere in the first century. Nobody pretended there's a separation of church and state or religion and state. Nobody even pretended that. In fact, religion was supposed to bless and sustain and legitimize what was happening in right. the society. So he summons his allies, the chief priests and the scribes, and says, well, what do you know about this? And they say to him, well, it's a matter of location, location, location. Um, And they cite this verse from Micah that there a ruler is going to come from this town of Bethlehem, which is associated with the line of David, of course. And so they suggest that Herod goes and looks there. So that's the first thing he calls their allies. The second thing he does is that he summons the magi, the so-called wise men, the political advisors again, and says, all right, you've caused enough trouble. So I want you to go to Bethlehem and find out where this newborn king is. So he tries to turn them into spies. Come back and tell me. Some recon work. Yeah, some recon work. Third thing he does is he tells them lies. He says, I want to come and worship him. No, he doesn't. He wants to kill him. King Herod was untruthful. King Herod was untruthful. Hmm. We've got allies, we've got spies, and we've got lies. Hey, they rhyme. That's That'll pretty preach. clever. That's pretty good. <laughs> Allies, spies, and lies. There's there you go. Sermon. There you are. There's your next sermon. So um, another chapter title for the next. <laughs> could at least go in the bulletin. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yep. I like it. Yep. So off go the off go the magi. They pay homage to the newborn Jesus with their gifts. Everybody's made jokes about. Um, gold, myrrh, and Frankenstein, and all this sort of stuff. Um, they, they pay homage. But then God intervenes, and they are warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. So again, God is doing the controlling. Right, we've got another dream associated with a guy called Joseph. So we've got echoes of a story from, from Genesis. Yeah, this old story. Um, but God is intervening. God is looking after um, Jesus. So they go home by another way, and Herod is thwarted. We also get um, the intervention through a dream of God with Joseph, and Joseph uh, is told to take Mary and Jesus and trot off to Egypt to get out of harm's way, to flee. So the story turns them into refugees. They have to flee this political violence, this political tyranny, that Herod um, represents. But all of which is God controlling the story, right. keeping Jesus safe. So what happens when a tyrant king is frustrated? People have to die. People have to die. So Herod has a patty tantrum. 
and sends his troops off to Bethlehem, right, where Jesus mm-hmm. has been born, with orders to um, to kill the infant boys two years old and under. So here's a here's an action that if he shoots wide enough, he's bound to get Jesus. Right although he doesn't know that they've gone off to to Egypt. So this is a horrific scene in verse 16 of chapter 2, the killing of the baby boys in Bethlehem, known throughout the ages as the slaughter of the innocents or the massacre of the innocents. And where else have we heard of a king wanting to kill all the boys two years and under? That just sounds so familiar. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Yeah. Does it have anything to do with the, the evoking of Egypt in the story as well? Mm, probably not. Fair go. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Let my people go. Let my people go. Yeah, so we've got echoes here yeah. of Moses and Pharaoh and the people coming out of slavery in Egypt. It's almost like a you know verse 2 or 2.0. Yeah. It's almost like a rerun here. This this killing of the infants, though, in Bethlehem really raises a very difficult theological question. It's a horrible event. Yeah. Um, sometimes you can you see paintings of this scene, and it's, mm-hmm. it looks like thousands and thousands of infants are killed. Bethlehem was a tiny little place, um, and there weren't thousands and thousands of little babies under two years old. Right. Um, uh, we, we don't have any other evidence for this event, um, but if it did happen, and of course that's a big if, if it did happen, then maybe for a town of the size of Bethlehem we might be talking anything from three to ten infants, which is three to ten too many. Right. But it's not a mass slaughter of, of thousands as it's often presented. But the big theological problem is this. All through this chapter, God has been able to look after Jesus. Mm-hmm. And has kept Jesus safe. But somehow God can't keep the infants of Bethlehem safe from this infanticide that Herod carries out. And and one of the troubling things is, I mean, there's so many allusions here to the Exodus narrative. But Mm -hmm. within that, you know, the the plague of the, of the death of the firstborn, there's an out for anybody right. in the know. Mm-hmm. And now, granted, they're not based off age, but, you know, the idea that, you know, paint your doorpost and... The blood was protection. Yeah, yeah. it was protection. And so it's, it is, it's interesting that there's not a fail-safe to protect these other yeah. children or a full stop right. of, of Herod here. Herod yep. was about to go destroy all the children and God intervened in some right. way. Yep, there's no divine intervention here at all. Um, and these infants are simply killed um, while Jesus remains safe. And this is, this is a problem that was recognized very early on by interpreters of the story, very early on in the church's history. Um, folks could understand that this was about keeping Jesus safe right. and God's action in relation to Jesus, but, but there's sort of this collateral damage. Mm-hmm. There's this fallout um, in relation to these infants. And one of the very early ways of trying to interpret it was for interpreters to talk about these infants as martyrs. Interesting. Yeah, that they were sort of fast-tracked to heaven. They were spared the horrible woes and vicissitudes and trials and difficulties and sufferings of having to grow up as a human being. 
and they were released from all of that. So when you think about it, Jesus is really the one who didn't win, is kind of what they're saying. Everybody else. Well, that's, um, and it's not, I don't think it's that Jesus didn't win, it's that they didn't lose. Yeah. They, they, got, they were actually blessed in this event. I mean, talk about a, yeah. about a 180 degrees, right? Yeah. I mean, this is a massive reworking of the story um, to try to, in a sense, to defend God. Yeah. That's what they're doing. They're defending right. God. That God didn't make a mistake. Um, that God didn't abandon them. And this is actually language that some of the theologians use. They were not abandoned. God did not forsake them. But they were fast-tracked to heaven and it was all okay. Well, of course, it's not okay. Right. I mean, it is encouraging that there have been, you know, hundreds, thousands of years of people reading this and going and thinking and not just being like, well, I mean, it's, it's about Jesus. So, you know, they're, they're recognizing, oh, there's this problematic aspect and mm-hmm. we, we're going to have to do some theological gymnastics to try to make right. sense of this in right. some kind of meaningful way. And as opposed to just ignoring it, which, right. I mean, there are lots of texts that we just ignore. Yeah, <laughs> so. well, but often in our contemporary Christmas, we ignore it too. Mm-hmm. I mean, who's going, to, who's going to preach on this on Christmas Eve service, right? Yeah. Um, who's going to talk about this in January? Um, and I, I've done sessions with church groups around this text because it has a really interesting history of interpretation. But a number of folks in, in church groups don't even know it's here. Yeah. They don't even know that it's part of the story. That's crazy. Um, that's, that's how much we've neglected it. Um, so, yeah, uh, it's an important part of the story and a, and a very difficult part mm-hmm. of the story. I like to think that I came from a tradition that really ignored all the ugly stuff, but I did know about this. You did know about yeah, this one. I, yeah. didn't, I mean, I don't think. We d- it definitely wasn't part of our Christmas pageants. No, <laughs> or no, 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 it doesn't get part of it. Um, but <laughs> it's, it's also sort of almost mythologize like i mean the way it's talked about it's it's not about itself anymore it it signifies something right. different than this right. particular event this concept of the massacre of the innocents has mm-hmm. become ways that people talk about any unfortunate yeah situation with children yeah or young young kids. i mean i yeah i no. don't know if it was mentioned but i would be th- i would think that it was mentioned in relation to Sandy Hook. That's I what I was going to say with yeah. Sandy Hook, because it probably uh-huh. was brought up around yeah. something like that. If you Google it, you get thousands of references to all sorts of situations where there's been some sort of injustice or some sort of violence. And this phrase, the massacre of the innocents or the slaughter of the innocents, gets, mm-hmm. gets evoked in that context. It actually turns up in um, Mark Twain's um, novel, Tom Sawyer. Oh. Yeah, when um, when Tom has to whitewash the fence and he manages to get other kids to, to come and whitewash it. And so there's a the lovely sentence where Tom sits in the shade, munching an apple, swinging his legs, and looks for the next slaughter of the innocent to come along to, <laughs> to do the fence. Um, but it turns up in all sorts yeah. of places. So, I mean, it's it's almost a phrase. It's it's one of those phrases that's devoid. It's It's lost... It's reference. Yeah, yeah. It's it gone. means something, but it does not mean what it is. Right. It goes different places yeah. to happen. But notice that that as much as you know, it's here in the Matthew story, and there's a theological problem. The scene doesn't go without without recognizing its tragedy. Mm-hmm. And so, um, in verse eighteen, we get this quote from Jeremiah, 
uh, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they were no more. Um, so at least in that quotation from Jeremiah, there's a recognition of the tragedy yeah. of it and the grief and the lamentation, the wailing. Do you think that this recognition of the grief without a justification for God, an excuse for God in the text, might indicate that something, that this reference is something historical, maybe not widespread, but maybe a couple babies died during this these early days to where there's some story and a recognition of like, man, that's awful. Mm. Or do you know, I, I don't know. If, yeah, I don't it, think we have evidence for an actual historical event. And I think the, the narrative is constructing Herod as the baddest king mm-hmm. that he can possibly be. So we've had allies and we've had lies and we've had spies and now we have infanticides and now we have violence which is what tyrants do and I think one of the things that the chapter is doing is exposing the strategies of um, Roman allied Roman sanctioned kings one of the things the chapter is doing is saying look out be careful there's nothing you can do but look out be careful this is this is how they conduct business um, but th- and through it all, of course, God keeps Jesus um, safe. Is it possible some of the, I'm just shooting from the hip here, some of the story being constructed of Herod being just this nasty, awful man who in many ways can't be stopped up to this point is to set it up as almost kind of a foil for Jesus who when Jesus comes of age could stop it. So we, you know, we've talked, in some of in some of the stuff that you've written and other things that I've read, you know, the healings of Jesus are talked about as sort of an inbreaking of God's mm-hmm. reign, God's purposes in a broken world. Um, and so, you know, the concept here being Jesus is an infant and can't do anything about it, but just wait till he grows up. Yeah, I think I think it goes in two directions. Actually, I think there is that element that you know this is this this is typical of the imperial world. Mm-hmm. This is typical of Roman power. There's violence. There's destruction. And some of what Jesus does reverses that violence, mm-hmm. that destruction, diseases, hunger, um, exorcisms, for example, uh, exclusion of people who don't, well, the powerless folks who don't fit in. So there is some sort of rolling back of that damage. But the irony, again, is, or the complexity is, that we also have violence attributed to Jesus. Right. So the return of Jesus is a very violent affair um, as Jesus wipes out enemies, mm-hmm. for example. And that, I think, is, is very troubling. It's very understandable that Jesus as king mimics or replicates these expressions right. of power. Um, but um, So it's not just wonderful, wonderful, wonderful mm-hmm. Jesus doing lovely things, though that's part of it. That's just half the story. It's yeah. not the whole story. It's, um, you know, kind of imagining it's still playing the same game. We just have different players. There's some different players. And, of course, we're, we're supposed to think that if God is doing it, then we'd much rather have God doing it than mm-hmm. Herod doing right. it. We shouldn't miss the Moses echoes, of course, mm-hmm. again, Moses and Pharaoh um, and the liberation that comes out of that. So that's pointing in the same direction, that uh, that something good can come out of this in the divine purposes. But it's not unambiguous. Right. Yeah. I mean, we get another dream saying, come on back, yeah. you're fine. 
Yeah, the, the chapter ends in a very interesting way. So they go back to Judea mm-hmm. where Archelaus now is ruling and it says he ruled over Judea in the place of his father Herod. Now there's a scary phrase. Yeah. Um, so Archelaus was the next Roman sanctioned king. He was Herod's son. Um, but he was so bad that folks um, basically revolted and the Romans removed him in the year six. They said he was unfit to rule. <laughs> and at that stage, the Romans appointed governors. And that's where subsequently, you know, some 20 or so years later, the governor, Pontius Pilate, is going to be appointed to Judea. That's how we get governors. So he, he, he Pilate, belongs in that line. But because Archelaus is so bad, he, the, the, the family, Joseph and Mary and Jesus, are warned again in a dream to go to Galilee. So off they go to Galilee and they live in a city called Nazareth, which was, as it says, spoken by the, what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. The interesting thing about that <laughs> is nobody can find this verse. <laughs> Okay, so it hasn't even come up in anything in the Dead Sea Scrolls nope, where nobody can it's like, oh, this was just a tradition that got lost to us. Nobody can find this. He should be called a Nazarene. Well, I mean, what you can't find, provide. So, <laughs> so. <laughs> people come up with other explanations about um, uh, what this could possibly refer to and what other words it might refer to. Um, there's a there's a um, Hebrew word Natsir, which refers to a branch from the line of David. Okay. So do we have some sort of clever little pun here? There's another group of folks called Nazarites. Um, Samson was a Nazarite mm-hmm. in the Hebrew Bible, and they were folks who um, didn't cut their hair and uh, didn't drink wine. So they they understood faithfulness to God, having some particular. They were early pe- proto Pentecostals. Proto Pentecostals. <laughs> there you didn't go. Didn't cut their hair. Well, I guess the men didn't, but the women the women don't. The women weren't. Yeah. Circles. It doesn't say anything about whether they had to wear dresses or not. <laughs> yeah. But no makeup though. No makeup. Don't even try. No makeup. So if if the, so, the thing about the Nazarites were that they were, were intensely committed to serving God very much devoted mm-hmm. to serving God. So is this uh, supposed to be evoking that Jesus is going mm-hmm. to be intensely committed to serving God? Or is it a reference to being a nature, to, to one who comes from the line or the branch of David? Um, you know, is something happening linguistically right. that's not just as obvious as he lives in Nazareth? Right. Um, we don't know. Um, those are a couple of guesses, of course, when we don't know people make uh, make interpretive guesses. Right. Well, and I mean... And both of those would work. It's, yeah, or maybe it's supposed to be doing both, or maybe there was... Yeah, could be both. Spoken through the... It's just interesting to hear a spoken through the prophets, and it's not from one of the biggies yeah. that made it to us. It's not specified, and it's plural. Yeah. So it just might be a way of saying, you know, that this is an accord with God's will. Right. That he be totally devoted to doing God's will or that he be in the line of David or whatever. So, yeah, it's vague. Yeah. Um, nobody can find it. That's fun. <laughs> yeah. That's my new life mission, to find Find it, <laughs> find yes. It. That's your task now. Uh, my, find that and cue. There I'm you go. Yep, yep. Dig around. Okay, so big picture, Matthew 1 and 2 are, they're not just a cute little story about sweet little baby Jesus and right. how he got some fancy gifts when he right. was too young to appreciate them. right. And played with the box and, and the wrappings yeah, rather played, than... Yeah. 
<laughs> the Magi are like, really? <laughs> I spent so much money on that. This is college fund. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but these two chapters are really doing some heavy lifting in terms of positioning Jesus and who he is and what his mission will be in his activities moving forward. Right. And setting the stage for that mission, and the heavy lifting is a good phrase, um, by showing something of the damaging and destructive Roman imperial world. You know, the text yeah. doesn't say, hey, this is Rome, but that's what it's doing. Mm -hmm. Herod is a Rome-appointed king right. um, who's looking after Roman interests. So it's also setting out the sort of context, some of the damage, some of the danger that exists in that world. And, of course, it's setting it totally over against Jesus right. and God's purposes that Jesus is supposed to be manifesting, God's saving presence in the midst. In the Luke stuff, we don't have that as overt. I mean, Mary's song definitely, I think, does some of that work. Yeah, no, I think we have it in, in Luke, but in a different way. Okay. Um, we don't have a Herod character but we do keep getting these evokings of what that world is mm -hmm. like. And you mentioned the, the Mary's song, Mary's Magnificat, um, certainly describes this world that's being turned upside down. Um, we have the census mm -hmm. that, again, it's very doubtful that we actually had a census, right. but it's used to get Jesus to Bethlehem. But it's another way of showing uh, Roman control over people's lives. Right. Not only do they have to go to be counted, but the only reason that um, governments in the ancient world and rulers counted people was to tax them. And so these is that are what this upcoming census is about. There you go. So um, thank goodness things have changed. Mm. Um, so you know, again, it's a way of recognizing the controlling influence of this right. Roman world on people's lives and the big dangers and and damaging things that can take place. And again, it's setting the stage for what Jesus is going to stand up in his opening sermon in chapter 4 in Luke in the synagogue at Nazareth and declare from Isaiah that he's anointed to bring good news to the mm -hmm. poor, which is most of the population, right. um, to set free folks who are captives, to heal the blind. I mean, he's, he's laying out his program um, from Isaiah. He's laying out his job description um, but it's been set up with these descriptions of the sort of Roman power that controls this world. So it's doing it in a different yeah. way. And it's, I think, one of the criticisms that has been sort of launched at Empire Studies is, well, it doesn't say Rome. Right. Um, which is is so silly because I don't have to say anything about the American economy and capitalist structures, but when I say I'm broke... Mm -hmm. That says a lot about our right. American. I mean, exactly. it says a lot about me, maybe, but also about the structures within yeah. our our particular society. Right. And I don't have to right. reference it in any way at all. Right. Um, it's an it's assumed. It's right. it's so pervasive in right. how I experience the world that I don't even recognize some of the ways that right. this context has yeah, shaped me. That's very true. And the, and the gospel writers don't have to don't put in a little note or a little sidebar right. saying, "Dear reader." Did you notice the following five things <laughs> yeah. about the way that empire ruled the world? Right. And if you did, then you will understand these things because it's assumed that people will yeah. understand. They're they all... don't have to spell it out. Uh, we're the ones who have to spell it out to to make it um, to make it uh, 
into consciousness so that we understand this, the power structures that are at work here. Well, thank you so much Pleasure. for taking time. This took long. <laughs> we did this longer than I told you initially, so thank That's you. That's all right. Um, Happy to be um, Jill Nelson's ad- dissertation <laughs> advisor. Get your, your business card to say that. Yeah, I'll, I'll get that added. <laughs> All right. Well, you should all go out and buy when it comes out. When does your book mark from the wisdom? It's out. It's out. So the yep. wisdom commentary series, Dr. Carter has just wrote. It's a big old book, but if you're interested in learning about Mark and thinking about it through lens of gender um, and empire, always it's always there. Then you should definitely go and get it in any of his other books. Um, so that way. Because being my dissertation advisor doesn't pay very well. So. <laughs> there <laughs> so, you go. Um, all right. Well, again, thanks much. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. 